Flavio Briatore. You say that Fernando Alonso is detoxed and ready for a return to F1. Eh, see, this is true. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, uh, Nando has been in F1 for uh, many, many years and all the travel and all the racing and all the hate. It built up inside Fernando like a bad sardine panini and an old bottle of ouzo, like a sort of poison. So, uh, Flav, help. I see. And how did you help? Nando and Flav very close, like uh, sexy brothers who share a sleeping bag. Uh, uh, right. So Nando spent time with Flav, very close. We rubbed together baby oil on my body. Then Fernando rubbed himself on Flav's belly. That sounds horrible. No, no, he's very, very, how you say, uh, beautiful, sexy cure. Cure? How does this cure Fernando Alonso? Flav, lovely, lovely big belly, absorb all the toxins from Alonso. They go out of Alonso into Flav. Flav, like how you say, absorb a love. That might just be the most disgusting thing ever. You haven't seen little Flav yet. Look. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth, I'm at home. She's Sarah, she's at home. Hello. He's Zog, he's at home. Hello. And speaking to us from his home as a special guest for the very first time, I'm pleased to say on Gareth Jones on Speed, Mark Gallagher. Hey, Mark. Very nice to be joining you this evening. Whereabouts is your home, by the way? About 15 minutes from Silverstone, just kind of north of Oxford in a little village in sort of rural North Oxfordshire, really. Conveniently placed at the heart of motorsport, which you've been for over 30 years, is that right? Yes, it's a very long time, isn't it? (laughs) I've started to be introduced on shows as a veteran. Oh, It's next step to a carriage clock and out the door, isn't it? We'll call you an authority, not a veteran. Thank you very much. I'm going to defer on this first subject we're going to talk about on the programme right now to Sarah. Yes. Because some news broke this week which the Australian contingent on this programme is going to be very, very, very happy about and that is Daniel Ricciardo is going to McLaren. Sarah, how do you feel? How do I feel? Well, I think it's exciting really for him. There's a lot of opportunity there probably. Well, there is lots of opportunity there. McLaren obviously outperformed Renault last season, but the exciting thing I think for Ricardo is that McLaren will have Mercedes engines and up until now Ricardo's had a lot of engine problems with Renault so I think it will be an exciting time for him but it's very interesting I think because I would have thought his preference would be the Ferrari seat but I assume that he wouldn't want to be number two to Charles Leclerc would you agree? I think that's probably exactly what's driven it he still sees himself as a race winner because he is a proven race winner and if you're a race winner you can be a championship winner and the current status at Ferrari as they've run for very many years is a number one and a number two driver Zog I'm going to come to you about this has Ricardo made the right choice has he gone to the right team I think he has McLaren's trajectory is upwards at the moment I think 
it's been a bit of a shame to see how Ricardo went last year. We were used to seeing him fighting at the sharp end, and last year we saw him reversing his car into another car after sliding off the track at one point. You know, those are our memories of last year. That was horrible. And I think in all kinds of ways, it's a really good fit. I can see Ricardo and Lando Norris being a very good match. I mean, I think they're bound to be a fan favourite. You know, two of the happiest, smiliest, most positive fun drivers out there but they're also drivers who don't let the bonhomie and the smiles fool you they are real racers and yeah i'm looking forward to seeing ricardo having a better car underneath him let's hope they can do some good things together and for mclaren it's good for them to have a race winner back in the car because let's not forget that they've been a little while now i guess without a proven grand prix winner in the car and ricardo has won seven races he's bringing useful experience back to the team i think they're going to do great things they did try and get ricardo last time before he signed with renault yeah they did yeah yeah Yeah. mark do you think ricardo's correcting a mistake he made in his last choice of which team to go to when he left red bull no not at all i think it's actually been the greatest heist in robbery history i mean he basically went to renault relieved them of a very large amount of money for one year (laughs) Uh, and then promptly went off to McLaren. I said, I think the other day to someone, I've seen bank heists that have taken longer and resulted in less money coming out. So from a financial point of view, it's been great. He's also found out when he went to Renault that for all kinds of complex reasons they're just not the team that's going to become a race winner anytime soon and as Sarah pointed out I mean they were outperformed by McLaren Renault last year just as they've been outperformed by Red Bull Renault uh, prior to that so the reality is that uh, Daniel went he saw didn't like what he saw and then of course as soon as Zach Brown realised that Carlos Sainz was being required by Ferrari, it became a very quick marriage made in heaven, frankly, between Ricardo and McLaren. You're a man who follows the money in Formula One, Mark. You know where it goes. Is the deal that Ricardo will be getting at McLaren, will it match the kind of spondulix he was getting at Renault, or has he gone there on a performance kick, do you think? Well, I think the first thing to say is that on any of these deals, there's no doubt that it always remains confidential. We know roughly the kind of money that Daniel was getting at Renault. It was kind of approaching $20 million a year. It's doubtful that he's getting that as a basic at McLaren, but I would imagine he actually stands a chance of earning more than that because he's a very consistent points finisher. He certainly will be a consistent points finisher, again, to Sarah's point with Mercedes engines in the back of that McLaren. So I think whatever way the deal is structured, you can be sure that he will, again, financially really benefit from it. And then really, you know, ticking Zog's point, Daniel is a seven times Grand Prix winner, but seven isn't enough for Daniel Ricciardo. He was on the podium 29 times. He feels like he needs to win more Grand Prix. And actually, ultimately, he wants to have a chance and a crack at the World Championship if that opportunity can ever materialise for him. And I think he has to hope that in the new normal of Formula One, the new cost cap normal of Formula One, that perhaps a team like McLaren, which is on the rise, can start to steal Grand Prix victories, even with customer engines, in precisely the way, frankly, that Red Bull has done in the past. Zog, if you were going to put money on McLaren getting a win, who's going to get that win first? Ricardo? Or Norris? Ricardo. Extremely promising and talented though Norris is. I think Ricardo is a better, faster driver. Simple as that. 
maybe Norris will come up to that level. He's got great potential. But I'm a Ricardo fan. I think he's got tremendous ability to see an opportunity take that opportunity in the race. He's strong at defending his position in a race. He's a very exciting, skillful driver. And, you know, he's already, in a way, a driver who one might feel has sort of underperformed a bit. You know, you might have expected him to have achieved more by this point in his career than actually he has. And, you know, there have been some sideways or backwards moves that have, of course, contributed to that. But I think that speaks to his talent, that I think a lot of F1 fans would feel that he hasn't yet delivered the kind of results that he's capable of. I'm just looking at the driver's standings from last year. Daniel Ricciardo finished the season ahead of Lando Norris and obviously Daniel had the weaker car so Ricciardo came in ninth and Lando Norris 11th so I'd have to agree with you statistically there Mm. that Daniel Ricciardo will definitely get a podium before Lando Norris does. This entire situation has come about because the relationship between Scuderia and Vettel has soured over the years. Mark, did you see this coming? Well, I think last year we kind of saw a slow motion collapse in Sebastian Vettel's relationship with Ferrari so that it wasn't a complete shock to all of us when we heard that the negotiations had broken down this time around. And I think really the key point after everything that happened last season, Charles Leclerc uh, qualifying on pole position seven times, those back-to-back victories in Belgium and Italy. But the, really the key point was coming up to Christmas, all of a sudden Ferrari announced that Charles Leclerc has signed a contract until the end of 2024, which uh-huh. in Formula One terms feels like an eternity. So they were making the longest possible commitment to the young Monegasque driver. And I think for Sebastian Vettel and his advisors, he doesn't have management, but for Sebastian and his advisors the penny must have started to drop in some way at that point in realising we're not on the front foot. Because even if Sebastian had gotten a new three-year contract, it still wouldn't have been as long as the contract that Charles Leclerc has. And as we now know, actually, Mattia Bonotto had kind of made his mind up that he wasn't probably going to re-sign Sebastian. And so really during the winter, Charles Leclerc sealed a lid in some ways on Seb's future. And of course, discussions began with Carlos Sainz. So I I think it's sad to see the way in which it's all come about and particularly with the news bubbling to the surface while we're all in lockdown it's kind of become the big story hasn't it of uh, these last few weeks well they say all political careers end in disaster or disappointment don't they and the same is the truth you could argue for formula one if you don't retire when you've just won a world championship everything is going to be downhill and do you think that ferrari mark have sensed this and they didn't see vettel as a reliable number one driver and the reason that he's left ultimately or they've agreed to part terms was that he knew he was going to be a number two and he's not ready for that it is hard. He doesn't want to be a number two. And, and I think Ferrari probably made him an offer he had to refuse in some ways. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a slightly counterintuitive approach, I think, that Ferrari may have taken. But, you know, the sad fact is that for Sebastian, he was already having some difficulties. We'd seen a few errors, a few mistakes. I mean, I remember the crash. I'm sure you all remember the crash at the beginning of the Singapore Grand Prix yep. three years ago when he and Kimi managed to kind of pincer across Max Verstappen and take each other out. And I remember at that moment thinking, 
you know, this, these are the kind of incidents that really are unforced. They're uncharacteristic of a four times world champion. And since then, there've been kind of mistake after mistake, not huge ones. But when you add them all together and then you look at what happened in Brazil at the end of last year, which I think was pretty damned unforgivable. Whether you blame Sebastian Fulio or Charles, the fact is that the two Ferrari drivers coming together was just a complete no-no. Yep. And, you know, the result is bad news for Sebastian Vettel. I really hope that Formula One doesn't lose him because he is still only 32. And although he came into Formula One at the age of 19, surely there is some mileage still left in uh, the Sebastian Vettel tank. That's my next question to Zog. First of all, Zog, with uh, Vettel, do you think Vettel will settle for Renault? Do you think he could go to Alpha and displace Kimi? Or do you think it's time for Vettel to walk from Formula One? My gut feeling is that it's a coin flip whether he's going to stay or not, because I don't think he really relishes, I mean, particularly with the success that he's had in the sport, you, you don't get the feeling that he's going to relish fighting for a best-of-the-rest finish in a car that doesn't have a chance of winning. Now, you know, he's not going to have the opportunity of a front-line seat. Those are all taken. So, yeah, where does he go? Does he go to Renault? Of the options that Renault have, honestly, I would have thought that Alonso was probably more appealing than Vettel right now. If only from a kind of PR point of view, he still has decent speed. Then again, obviously, he's been out of the current generation of cars for a while, whereas with Vettel, you've got somebody who is bang up to date. I don't know. My gut feeling is it's 50-50 whether he'd walk away from the sport. But of the options that are there, Renault has to be the most likely, surely. Sarah, there's a seat vacant at Renault for Vettel. Who would you put in? Would you put Vettel or would you put Alonso or would you pick a junior driver? Well, it's a good question, really. I think that maybe Alonso would be a bit of a crowd favourite, to be fair. He's got a good following, doesn't make as many unforced errors. If you saw Vettel in a car like Renault's that isn't as powerful as a Ferrari or a Red Bull, it might leave him quite exposed. He might finish a lot further down in the driver's standings than what he may think, Mm -hmm. given on his past performances of the last sort of season or two at Ferrari, which is sort of a very unreliable driver, I suppose, in terms of the amount of errors he made. And my understanding, though, Mark, to your point, Mark, I think you said Vettel may have been offered a contract at the beginning of the year from Ferrari, but my understanding is that he wasn't offered a contract at all. <laughs> Maybe he, I don't know. <laughs> um, it was kind of constructive dismissal. I know. think I'd like to see personally Alonso. I think Sebastian Vettel's ego wouldn't allow him to go to a lesser team because he's won those four world championships. He's raced at Red Bull, he's raced at Ferrari. I think he thinks he might be too good for it. But he is only 32, but... I mean, look at Nico Rosberg. He was only, what, 30 when he won the World Championship and retired. But to his credit, he retired as soon as he won the World Championship. I don't think he thought he could keep competing at that level. Mm. Yeah, well, the Rosberg thing is interesting. Some people seem to rather take against the way that he walked away from the sport. It seemed to me that Rosberg was being very honest with himself in admitting that he was never going to achieve that again. He could never again beat Lewis Hamilton to the World Championship. And so why not retire on a high rather than beat your head against a brick wall? A quick thought on Renault, though. Appealing though Alonso would be for the team and to the fans, one possible issue for Renault with bringing Alonso on board is that it's kind of turning their back on their own young driver program, their driver academy. And, you know, they're spending money and resources on developing young drivers. When all of a sudden the seat opens up in the team, 
if you haven't got somebody coming out of that program, graduate of the program to put into your car, why are you doing it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Mark, there's not a lot of spare cash in La Régie at the moment in their road cars or their F1 team. Surely they can't afford Alonso or Vettel and they have to take a young driver. Would you agree? I think that could be quite a creative deal done with someone like Vettel and or Alonso because the reality is that there is going to be a salary available from Renault, no question, may not be quite the salary which Daniel Ricciardo has managed to get out of them, but there will still be a substantial payment available. And for someone like Fernando Alonso, if he is as interested as I've been hearing on the grapevine, the reality is that this is a kind of a last throw of the dice. It's a chance for him to come back and have maybe another year. And of course, approach it from the perspective that, you know, if you talk to people at McLaren about Fernando, I mean, he was extremely frustrated with Honda to the point where it kind of became an all-encompassing issue for him whilst he was there. And the reality is that if he goes into Renault, he is going to know exactly to Zog's point. He's going to know that he's not in the car capable of winning races in the World Championship, but he may well be in a car capable of getting top six finishes, having quite a lot of fun, showing what he can do again. And at the age of 38, and maybe feeling like he left Formula One on a downbeat, he may feel like actually he can come back and play a useful role in the development of Renault. And one final thought on this sort of point from my perspective, when David Coulthard's career at McLaren Mercedes came to an end, you know, he was pretty concerned that he was going to be in the scrap heap and there were no obvious drives available. And Jaguar was a very, very unfancied team at the time, but it was morphing into becoming Red Bull Racing. And David decided that actually he would see out his career by helping a sort of midfield team find its mojo, begin the climb up to towards the front and he didn't just drive for Red Bull Racing in those first few years he also helped them to recruit the best people understand why things weren't as good in the team as they should have been so actually a Vettel or an Alonso could actually reset their horizons to actually be doing a different job than simply jumping in the team and trying to go to win races. That's interesting. Also that Toto Wolff said that there would be obvious PR opportunities to have a German driver like Vettel, I think those are the words he used, at the Mercedes team. Was Toto saying that just to manage expectations of his incumbent drivers? Wasn't that such a beautiful and blunt way of just rattling the cage of Valtteri and Lewis Hamilton? Not yeah. that I think that he needs to rattle Lewis Hamilton's cage, but you know, it was it's such a nice little pressure point to bring to bear. And actually, again, going back to Sebastian Vettel, you know, when he was in those negotiations with Ferrari, and he, and he did receive an offer from Ferrari, but it was not put to final contract. He did receive an offer, but it was not an acceptable one. The reality is that he probably missed an opportunity early on, Sebastian, to say, actually, I'm in the hunt for another drive. There's someone else you know, talking to me. And that's part of the game that has to be played in Formula One, always making just a very slight suggestion that there is someone else who wants to have you. You've been in the Piranha Club. Did you ever get bitten? Oh, I mean, I've seen all sorts over the years. And I think the reality is that, I mean, I've not fortunately been a team principal, so not been in the, in the firing line. But I've been in meetings where we think we've signed a driver 
and we literally open Autosport to find that they've gone and signed somewhere else. Or you think you're having a meeting with someone on a Monday to agree a new deal, and on Sunday evening you get a phone call from their manager to say, sorry, we've decided to go elsewhere on this occasion. And, of course, when you lose a driver in the midst of a deal because everyone focuses on the driver and on that specific deal. The reality is that most driver deals, certainly significant driver deals, have a lot of other things associated with them in terms of sponsorships and other important relationships within the company. And so when a deal doesn't happen, it usually does have a domino effect and it can be a pretty painful experience. Well, so this domino effect that was driven by Vettel leaving Ferrari at the moment has seen science go to Ferrari, do you think Sainz might have actually been better off staying at an improving McLaren team rather than going to be a number two at Ferrari? In terms of the machinery that's available to him, possibly. But I think as a driver, it'll probably motivate him to have been given the the nod by Ferrari and it's a good sort of personal development step for him, I think. But in terms of what he would actually have available in terms of machinery, that's a harder call. Yeah, McLaren are on and up, but realistically, probably next year, Ferrari will still be quicker. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of really hedging my bets here, aren't I? He's made the right move. I mean, it's going to be good for him. He's going to be positive about it when he steps into that that car how the relationship with Leclerc works out is a bigger question I think because he's going to be a tough teammate and I'm not sure that science has always been maybe the easiest guy to get on with as a teammate so it's possible there'll be fireworks between them Sarah last one to you then I think Ricardo at McLaren or would you rather have seen him at Ferrari I think his background being Italian it would have been really good to see him at Ferrari I think that might be something that he's had to let go of with his parents being that sort of Italian background as well the glove fits if he went to Ferrari so it would have been great to see Daniel at Ferrari I don't know how he would have gone though he's a very consistent reliable driver but the last couple of seasons, Ferrari strategically have sort of self-sabotaged in a way. So I think it's exciting if that he goes to McLaren. It could be a masterstroke. That's what they all sort of said when he went to Renault. But I think everybody deep down knew that the Renault move perhaps wasn't going to be a masterstroke, but more of a money heist. <laughs> so I think he'll do well, hopefully, at McLaren. And it will be interesting to see how they go with the Mercedes engines. We will find out, but probably not for at least eight months. If, like me, you listen to a lot of Manic Street Preachers music, and I bet you don't listen to quite as much as I do, uh, you may have noticed that their lyrics often sound like they're just a collection of separate phrases, even platitudes sometimes sort of liberally thrown together they don't even properly scan but somehow James Dean Bradfield manages to turn them into a song so I've taken a bunch of expressions that motor racing drivers use after a race often excuses for why they didn't win and turned them into a song roughly in the style of Manic Street Preachers or in my case the Panic Sleep Teachers I give you The team done a great job today.
I'm very pleased to have an old ally of mine, Mark Gallagher, on the programme today. Mark, we first met, I know you'll remember the A1 GP years together when you uh, were the team principal at A1 Team Ireland, but actually the first time we met was in the paddock at Imola in 1998 when Damon Hill was driving for Jordan and I think at that time you were Jordan's commercial manager. Is that what you were doing at Jordan? I was marketing director. I was on the management board. I looked after marketing which covered a multitude of sins from sponsorship to PR to licensing and goodness knows what else. And then a colleague of mine, Ian Phillips, he was head of commercial affairs or business affairs, I think. So Ian kind of did things like the driver deals and worked closely with Eddie on the big sponsorship like Benson and Hedges. And then I brought in a lot of the other logos that you would have seen on the car. So the three of us kind of ran the commercial side of the team. Can I ask, because I've never asked you this, how did you end up in Formula One? Really quite kind of bizarre uh, turn of events. I did a degree in economics in my home city of Belfast, the Queen's University, and I was actually going to become an accountant, believe it or not. Absolutely fascinating (laughs) career prospect there. And I came to London to have some interviews. And while I was in London, I noticed an ad in Autosport magazine. They were looking for someone actually working in the advertising department. And because I was mad keen on motor racing, I applied for the job and I got it. And I started working for Autosport. And within about a year, I'd gone from selling advertising to starting to write for them and I basically spent seven years in the media in the 1980s working in Formula One. I went full-time freelance after about three years so I did lots and lots of different things. I think the most exciting thing I did at that time was I kind of put a foot in the commercial camp and I got a contract with one of the big tobacco companies Marlboro when they were sponsoring McLaren and Ferrari and I did a lot of work for Marlboro. I did a lot of work for Canon when they were sponsoring Williams with Nigel Mansell and Ricardo of Patrese and people like that so got to know the teens and such like and then a fellow Irishman of course Eddie Jordan he popped up and said to me in 1990 I'm going to start a Formula 1 team so I joined Eddie and one way or another I worked with and then for Eddie basically for well over a decade right through the kind of purple patch of Jordan's heyday and then I went from there to the sort of infancy of Red Bull racing before setting up Status Grand Prix which was the company with which I did A1GP Formula One today is a very different game to the one that you entered in 1991. Is it unrecognisable to your eyes these days or are the same rules apply? It's not unrecognisable. In 91, we all thought we were the latest, greatest, the most amazing. And of course, compared to today, it is very different in terms of technology. I'll tell you something that's really interesting because I know we're going to talk about budget caps. At its peak at the end of the 1990s, Jordan Grand Prix's budget was about $140 million. Wow. Which is actually not dissimilar from the budget cap. Yeah. Which is now being talked about. And I told a couple of people that, and they've kind of said, what, really? So if you think about it in real terms, putting my economist hat on. Yeah. So in real terms, actually, what we're looking at is a cheaper Formula One than it cost 20 years ago. So I think that there is a tendency to think that the sport has moved on to some amazing telephone numbers in terms of budgets, etc. But actually, when I look back at the 1990s, we were a 
awash with tobacco money and that tobacco money disappeared in 2005 and actually I would really argue that the last 15 years have been quite lean for Formula One in terms of money coming in and that's one of the reasons why we've ended up in this situation in 2020 with the likes of Claire Williams and Zach Brown and frankly pretty well everyone apart from Christian Horner and Mattia Bonotto saying actually we need to tighten our belts. The budgets at the moment that have been discussed, the cap was proposed at $175 million. That was lowered to $145 million. Ha! Peanuts. And then when they tried to drop it to $130 million, talks reached a deadlock. But McLaren, curiously, this is quite surprising in my opinion, McLaren advocating a lower budget cap of $100 million. I mean, that's two-thirds of what it was in 1990. So in very real terms, it's a quarter or less of what it was back then. But I think that tells you everything you need to know about McLaren as a group. And the pressures that they're under, because as we all know, for example, in the UK, car sales dropped by 97% in the month of April yep. in the UK because of the COVID-19 lockdown. Now, in the middle of that crisis in the automotive industry, you have the supercar manufacturers like Aston Martin, like McLaren. And they are really struggling. And if they're not selling cars, that's a problem for the McLaren group. And it means that the Formula One team more than ever has to stand on its own two feet. And the best way for Zach Brown to make the Formula One team actually wash its face and not be a draw on the rest of the group's resources is to get the budget cap down to as low a figure as possible. And frankly, what we're now looking at is a Formula One in which the teams almost don't need sponsorship. In other words, they will essentially live off the revenue that they get from Liberty Media, that sponsorship will enable them to become perhaps profitable. But actually what they're essentially saying is there's Armageddon all around us and we have to prepare for a future when actually sponsorship might be non-existent or at best thin on the ground. That's a terrifying thought, relying on Liberty Media. Zog, I don't know if you're aware, but Liberty Media's shares have fallen through the ground since January. I'm not sure what the actual figures are, but they're something like uh, two-thirds of what they were in January. Mark, you'll probably know the answer to that. Yeah, well, they halved by April the 1st, and then they've continued their downward spiral ever since. And actually, something that is quite interesting is that because it's a publicly traded company, they have regular investor calls, and what's interesting is that every time they have an investor call where they are telling their shareholders, this is our strategy and this is what's happening and this is the future of Formula One, those same investors then go and they employ experts from within Formula One to tell them, is it true what Liberty is sharing with us? Do we think their strategy is actually right? And it, what's very clear is that Liberty you know, have a lot of pressure at the moment because there are people in Wall Street who are asking themselves the question, if there is no Formula One in 2020, if that Austrian Grand Prix suddenly gets cancelled, that doubleheader, if Silverstone doesn't happen, if all of a sudden there are no races, what actually happens to the future of Formula One if you have a year without any revenue coming in? And that's one of the reasons why four weeks ago Liberty actually moved some assets around across their group businesses to pump $1.5 million into Formula One because they essentially they have to shore up its balance sheet and make sure that it has the strength to weather what could be a pretty catastrophic year. 
as long as I understand it, Liberty are already advancing some of the money to the teams to keep them going. And France tossed of what used to be Scuderia Toro Rosso, now Alpha Tauri, says that every race they miss costs them $2 million. That's doing damage, isn't it? So do you think this is terminal for Formula One? You know, is it going to do very serious damage? I don't think it's terminal, but what we're going through at the moment is a period of events that are going to be a shock to all kinds of systems in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of unpredictable ways. It makes absolute sense, obviously, to do this budget cap and to make it as low as they realistically can, because whatever the uncertain future is, F1 teams are all going to be able to weather that future more easily, just put it simply. I doubt that all the teams are going to make it through the short tail of the COVID-19 crisis unscathed, but I wouldn't like to make any firm predictions about who's going to be hit the hardest. Now, this is bound to have an effect on F1 in the future. These kind of crises have a way of turning the clock forward on all kinds of things, on all kinds of things in society, in economies, and going to be the same for Formula One, I think, that it's going to force a lot of changes that might otherwise have taken longer and it's going to force some changes that just simply would otherwise not have happened and we don't know what those are yet so the future is uncertain there is a chinese curse isn't there may you live in interesting times and these are certainly interesting times yeah i always wonder though is there actually a chinese proverb that says may you live in interesting times or is that just one of those made-up things that we repeat yeah i will look into it and i'll find out the answer i don't know Hey, somebody tell us. I guess I could have Googled that, but uh, there we go. Sorry, carry on. Sarah, these are interesting times. We've got no racing at the moment, but other race series are plotting coming back. Or in the case of NASCAR in the States, they had a race a couple of days ago. Did you catch any of that, Sarah, at all? Do you know how they managed it? I'll tell you what, Gareth, I'm sorry to say I did miss the NASCAR. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to say yes. <laughs> I mean, no, I was meant to say yes. I know, sorry. <laughs> I, I deliberately I asked you that because I know NASCAR is not really on any of our radar here no. whatsoever. But Mark, <laughs> NASCAR have managed to start racing, haven't they? They're doing it yeah. behind closed doors. Do you think that's viable for Formula One? I think it is viable as long as the authorities in the country are happy to support it in the right way, which does include allocating medical staff who might otherwise be better used in the country's healthcare system. It's something that I know has been a talking point as regards the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. Where I do begin to see things that cause me concern is when you see Helmut Marko from Red Bull Motorsports saying in the last sort of 48 hours that he thinks that the easing of lockdown means that there might actually be spectators at the Austrian Grand Prix in July. Maybe they can allow some spectators to come to the race and perhaps watch the race using social distancing. And I start to really wonder if people understand just how serious this pandemic really is. And the fact that Actually, first of all, we have to question whether sport needs to return. If we then say, yes, sport needs to return, but it has to return in very different ways and to be handled very responsibly, then the next thing that we don't do is to try and create a scenario where it starts to move into the general public. And there was a breaking news story just earlier today I saw on Sky Sports that a number of premiership football players have tested positive for covid 19 ahead of a potential return to football later this year and you know the reality is that 
all areas of society have been affected by COVID-19. And what is to say that 1,500, 2,000 people travelling to the Austrian Grand Prix in July won't have 10, 15, 20 people among them who carry the virus. And that becomes really the big question mark about the return of Formula One. But I do think it can take place as long as there's testing, as long as the right procedures are put in place, and as long as the authorities are completely happy with Formula One putting on its show. Zog, Sarah, as I understand it, the authorities at the moment in Britain, the government, aren't terribly happy about their potential return of Formula One and that there might be no lifting of this two-week quarantine restriction on people travelling into the UK. So that rather nixes the plans for a double-header British Grand Prix in July, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds like it does. And this applies, as I understand it, to other sports as well that have been in discussions about having some kind of exemption for the 14-day quarantine period, which they would need in order to be able to put on the kind of events that they're thinking about putting on. The double-headed British Grand Prix idea at the moment does look a little uh, touch and go. But I was just thinking when Mark was making his last comments that this kind of gets to a sort of a, a bigger point. You know, we often talk about how sports people are expected to kind of, in some way, set an example to society. And, you know, a sport itself should set an example and should set an example of, you know, behaving responsibly and not taking yep. silly risks and encouraging irresponsible behaviour. And so and this is a very complicated issue in all kinds of ways, but it is important that Formula One is responsible and is seen to be responsible in the way that it manages the way that groups of people are going to interact. And it mustn't be seen to be encouraging people to mingle and mix in an irresponsible way that's going to either put those people directly at unnecessary risk of catching COVID-19 or is going to encourage other people to behave in a way that's going to increase their risks. I think that's a good point. However, I think maybe by the time these Silverstone Grand Prix come around, it might be the case that the government might ease these restrictions. I was in the park today and these sort of hanging out with somebody from another household being one other person from another household is not happening i'm seeing multiple <laughs> groups of people in large groups hanging out in the park yeah. um no policemen anywhere i'm sort of hoping or maybe my gut feeling is is that these restrictions will slowly ease anyway and hopefully by that time the government would have perhaps come up with some sort of arrangement to make these formula ones go ahead Mark, we've got a Tory government. They're all behind business. And F1 is a business apart from an hour and a half on Sundays when it's a sport. Do you think the business overweighs the sport at the moment in terms of its necessity to drive it back to racing for the public? To be honest with you, I've felt Formula One's you know, been a business all my career because you know I think when you work in a team and you see how many people are reliant on the sport working as a business in order to pay their mortgages every month and you know educate their kids and and do all the normal things in life i mean it's a sport that provides a livelihood of just so many people and as you asked me earlier on the program about where i'm kind of talking from this this evening you know up here in the motorsport silicon valley is where you think about the number of families that are literally waiting to see if formula one is going to survive this 
intact. There are a lot of people at the moment wondering how many redundancies will be made when the budget cap comes in. We know that Mattia Bonotto has said that Ferrari are looking at IndyCar racing partly because of the fact that they're going to redeploy existing staff from Formula One onto IndyCars with a restricted Formula One budget cap. So the business of Formula One for me has always been very, very evident at the moment. COVID-19 represents potentially an existential crisis, not for the sport, but certainly for individual teams. And I know you weren't particularly keen to name names, but you don't have to look very far. You think about Gene Haas, who was already wondering whether Formula One was working out to be the good plan that he was hoping it to be. You think about Claire Williams and Sir Frank and their team and all of the employees there. We think about Renault. We talked about Renault earlier on. If Renault Car Company decides that Formula One doesn't form part of their plans going forward, you know, that could equally suffer as a result. So this is an existential crisis for some of the teams potentially. And so the business side of it is absolutely taking front and centre stage in so many of the discussions going on because we frankly just have to live to fight another day on the other side of this coronavirus crisis. Well, let's hope there is an outbreak of sanity, arguably for the first time ever in Formula One, where they agree a certain amount of altruism towards the sport rather than looking after the interests of any individual team. And they decide that the budget caps is way forward. I mean, that's going to lead to sharing of technologies. It's not going to lead to a one make formula is it we're not going to see f1 becoming like indycar or even a1 gp where you've got a single manufacturer of the tub and it's a one make series so could you see formula one ever adopting that as a policy in desperate times to save its skin i think it has to avoid that because otherwise it loses its usp yep. it loses a lot of what makes f1 special so i'm not sure quite what middle way might be found between a spec formula a one make formula and the rigid insistence on making all of your own bits but you know there has to be some in-between way to be found that will enable the sport to maintain its distinctive character but also to keep the cost down and there are a lot of smart people who'll be thinking about that and i'm sure they'll figure it out i'm hoping they will sarah thank you for the moment zog thank you for the moment mark let me just ask you to give a quick plug for the various other places we can hear your extensive knowledge background in motorsport you're on radio five quite often you appear in a couple of other podcasts as well don't you yeah so i actually host mika hackenen's podcast mika and i have worked together dating all the way back to 1988 when i mentioned i was working with marlborough back then and he was young up and coming driver and we had some very good times back then so I present the Inside Formula One with Mika Hakkinen podcast and that's sponsored by a company called Unibet so if you go on the Unibet feeds you will find that podcast and it's a huge amount of fun and during lockdown we've actually been doing a podcast every week with Mika which we don't normally do but he's been up for a bit of a challenge and then the other podcast I do is with my former BBC colleague Jonathan Ledyard we produce a podcast called At The Controls which is actually we're trying to make it a little bit different in that it's not just two blokes sitting talking about Formula One as some of the other podcasts tend to be we're trying to invite people in to talk about not just what they do in Formula One but also their passions beyond the sport and we've had some really good guests on the At The Controls podcast so those are the couple that I'm currently involved in during this wonderful COVID-19 lockdown while we're all sitting broadcasting from our bedrooms in various places. You give me a great idea I would love 
to interview Juan Pablo Montoya about a passion that both he and I share for flying ready-controlled model aircraft. I'm going to chase that up. Mark Gallagher, thank you very much for joining us on Gareth Jones on Speed, Mark. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you. He was Mark Gallagher. Pleasure. She was Sarah Leach. Goodbye. He was Zog. Goodbye. And I was Gareth. This was Gareth Jones on Speed. Stay safe, guys, and hopefully we'll see you soon when the racing restarts. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed!